Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Susan Sanford Blades. I was born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta. I've been in Victoria for the past 13 years. I have always written, um, but maybe only started writing seriously about um, maybe like 12 years ago um, when I worked at the Malahat Review at the University of Victoria. I did my MFA at UVic a few years ago. (laughs) It seems not that long ago, but now that I think about it, it's been like five years or something my goodness um (laughs) and right now I work from home um as I edit um academic psychology uh papers for a psychology journal and I also teach uh sort of like an academic writing course at Royal Roads University and uh also sometimes live off of art grants and write books. (laughs) So this book, Make It So Real, is my debut novel, and I'm currently working on a second novel. Readers often identify with the qualities and characteristics of many different characters they find in the books they read. And so when I asked Susan what character in a novel she would be, she had a couple great answers. I have like a serious answer and a more fun answer that just popped into my mind. So the more fun one would be uh, Bridget Jones. (laughs) Maybe like all of us feel like we're a little bit like Bridget Jones. Um, And then the more serious one is the main character of Margaret Lawrence's The Fire Dwellers. I can't think of her name right now. It's like, oh, Stacy, I think is her name. Yeah, and she like that's just kind of like the me that just inhabited my marriage when I was married, just this kind of like unhappily married, thoughtful woman who sort of is feeling feeling trapped. <laughs> Susan's debut novel, Fake It So Real, is a finalist for the 2021 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Susan starts our conversation with a reading from the book. So I'm I'm just going to read a section from the middle of the book. This is told from the point of view of the youngest daughter, Meg, um, and it's kind of a quarter-life crisis type of story. All right. It's been three years since you held the title student, since you left the ivory-towered microcosm in which you held importance, promise, direction. You have a degree in art history, an apartment, a job as an overqualified barista trapped in purgatory between teenager and grown-up. You have no means to justify your existence on this planet aside from caffeinating hipsters, hacks, and high school hooky players. Until convocation, all was preordained. Now you don't know what, how, when the secrets of life will be divulged. You spend your time making plans you'll never carry out. All potential next steps come with a list of 
prerequisites you don't have the energy or commitment to fulfill. This cute guy frequents the cafe where you work, every time with the LSAT book. Skinny jeans precisely rolled, well-kept mustache, canvas loafers, hip lawyer, lawyer without a cause. He wants to talk to you. He orders fancy espresso drinks, inquires, what's a flat white? How does it compare to a latte? They're continents apart, you'd say. He laughs, too hard. The joke was lame and you both know it. It's embarrassing, his laughter. He tips in bills. I hope you're not expecting special treatment, you say. He opens his mouth, but only hiccups with a constipated wit. He retreats to his table. You don't care, he's a distraction. A month ago, Rocco left for Montreal. I can't be an artist in Victoria. You can be an artist anywhere. I can't be an artist with you. On, off, on again, off again, on again, off. Time to move on. The next day, the cute guy comes in later than usual. Last night's clothes steeped in some undergrad's drugstore perfume. The morning after is one size too big on him. He's bold, introduces himself. When you hear him say Tom, you relax. Tom is the name of a bus driver, a best friend's father, a husband watching his cholesterol. You buy Tom clothes at Value Village, dress him as Rocco, ratty t-shirts two sizes too small with funny sayings like super freak, hugs, not drugs, unicorns are horny. There's a snuggly in one of the bins, tossed there by accident. I think we need this he says. You've become a we, a hand holder, a crook of the arm rester, a better half, domesticated, constructed. At your apartment, his apartment, Tom wears the snuggly, inserts your teddy bear as baby. Let's go for a walk, he says. You take turns with the baby in the snuggly, hold hands, make plans, have visions, hallucinations, Kids, career, patio furniture, family car, stray cat, pack meetings, sick days, Christmas stockings. He kneels and grabs your hand at the corner of Rockland and Moss, umbrellaed by elderly pine. Meg, he says. You like the way he says your name, the way other people say God. Oh, Meg. Oh, God. You need to move on. Need to be a grown-up. Need to protect yourself from cellulite, elephant skin, spider veins, nursing homes, becoming your mother, dying alone. You say yes. You kiss Tom. Think about his tongue, its sluggishness. Think about breathing through your mouth again. Think about not thinking. We're getting married, you say. You should meet my mother. Tom is ecstatic. He can check it off his list. Your mother is hesitant but she's cleaned her apartment, tidied. The black footprints on the carpet remain, the mildewed bathroom towels, the nests of fallen hairs. She turns off the TV, serves corn chips and guacamole. Impressive. Corona, anyone? She laughs and waves her bottle. No, mom. Sure, Tom says, why not? Oh, Meg, she says, like, oh, fuck, live a little. You should see her when she's not drunk, you say to no one. Mom and Tom predict your future. 
spring wedding, lilies and cherry blossoms, small ceremony, registry at the bay, unimmaculate conception, one and a half kids, mom groups, law degree, house in hillside, sex on Tuesdays and Saturdays, soccer, gymnastics, art class, trips to Disneyland, cabin on a Gulf Island, summer camp, book clubs, potlucks, philanthropy, post-secondary education, empty nest, retirement, Hawaii, cruises, prescription drugs, cancer, nurses, home care, last will and testament, death, cremation, funeral, dedicated park bench. I feel like I have to, because when I was emailing you, when you were first uh, shortlisted for the Ethel Wilson, I mentioned the Victoria punk scene. And uh, as you mentioned, the book isn't really about that. It begins there and ends there. But I was curious what it is about that community and that scene that felt like the right place to start this book. Yeah, I like, I don't even know exactly why. I guess, I guess what happened was I wanted the, like, the dad character in this, like, this book is about, like, a family, and the dad abandons the family. I, I wanted him to be in a band, because I guess he was kind of the, that bad boy type, and it just seemed natural that he would be in a band. And punk rock, I think, like, it's because, I think the characters have, like, they have that punk sensibility of sort of like living on the margins of society and kind of doing their own thing, not really fitting in and to different extents, like basing, based on which character we're talking about, don't care. Some of them care more than others. So I guess that was kind of why I was drawn to punk rock as the sort of aesthetic to to write the book around actually I have this like I should find it but I have this quote that I saw recently um in an interview with Richard Howell who was like part of the like New York sort of CBGB's like punk scene he said something like punk rock is like little bursts of real life and I thought oh that's so great like that's what I try and do with like like the chapters in this novel or like short stories, it's kind of like a little burst of real life. And I thought, oh, okay, like maybe that's why I'm kind of drawn to that punk rock sensibility too. Like it's just very authentic and real. I loved that uh, that the meet cute happened in Pluto's because I, having grown up in Victoria, I like, I, I actually said to my parents, I'm like, is Pluto's even still there? Like it just, for me, it will always be there because it always has been there. Yeah, I mean, it is, but it's not. It's so sad. Like just recently, the original, the Pluto's building is like totally gone now. They, Pluto still exists like further down on Quadra Street, but that cool like 60s garage building that it was in is gone. It's really tragic. Um yeah, I know. I like actually I had to like stretch reality a bit because Pluto's didn't actually exist in 1983. But I just thought like it was such a perfect place for something so gross to happen. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think they would mind me saying that. I hope. <laughs> well, I think it kind of captures it accurately because, you know, 
for all the times I think I went, I can only remember ever eating French fries at Pluto's, which was probably the safest thing to eat at Pluto's. But I think it's the right place for, you know, gross, like you said, and for this kind of tumultuous relationship to come out of, because that's kind of what Pluto's was. (laughs) I think they own that too. (laughs) So you mentioned just briefly that it was that the book kind of occurs like short stories and having looked at the back it seems like you published um sections of the book as short stories did you always know in your mind that it was going to come together as a novel or was it kind of like you were just writing about these characters that maybe could come together in some way um yeah no mostly it was written as a book whether you want to call it like a book of linked stories or novels, like, (laughs) um, but no, well, when I started, there were a couple, I started writing some of the Meg story, the the stories from Meg's point of view first, I think. And once I had maybe two or three, that's when I thought, oh, like, this could be a book. And then, so after that point, I did write it with the thought that this was going to be a bigger project in mind and sort of with the idea of like filling in the blanks in like Meg actually started as like my main character but then it grew from there so like we need to hear like her origin story so that's when I wrote the first chapter the one that takes place at Pluto's and then just kind of filling yeah filling in like the blanks of important life moments basically and then the only story I think that doesn't really work on its own is like the final chapter which I wrote to sort of like make it feel like one work that fits everything together kind of yeah I wanted to ask if you would um talk a little bit about we've talked about Meg but I mean the novel is kind of these three stories that come together of Meg Gwen and Sarah and I wondered if you could talk about those three characters and you just talked about where Meg came from but maybe how Gwen and and Sarah sprouted out as well oh it's like so long ago I wish I could remember like I wish I could remember what my original spark idea for Gwen was because I think she's so great like she's so different from me in so many ways which I think like kind of we're kind of drawn to like our opposites because we just wish we could do that from time to time (laughs) Um, but I guess I think it was maybe because I said it sort of in that punk rock world. I wanted this sort of punk rock type of woman. And I kind of actually based her off of Courtney Love a little bit, um, which like also the title is from like a whole song. So that kind of all (laughs) came together. But um, so, yeah, I wanted Gwen to be just this kind of like woman who just doesn't care about anyone she just like does her own thing she's just like a little bit ruthless and um but also has a really big heart like I wanted that to be kind of the main the center of the book is like the heart and the family and then Sarah kind of also like she was just like really kind of quirky but also like a bit more a bit more of closer to Gwen than Meg I would say so maybe it's kind of like a a scale like Gwen is the most like out there doing her own thing giving 
you know, no care to anything. And then there's Sarah, who's like a little bit like that, but also like a bit more grounded and has a bit more sense of responsibility to those around her. And then there's Meg, who kind of like bears the burden of the family a little bit. She's sort of like the caretaker. Yeah, so I think like, honestly, they're all, they all have like little pieces of me in them. And it's like, it's like I took like a part of me and then just like extrapolated it into this like character. And I thought those three like work together in a family. Also like considering that their father is, you know, this guy who like abandoned his family and is kind of a bad boy. So the girls kind of have a little bit of that in them too. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that part because while it's the story is about those three characters and their relationships to each other, there's also like their relationship to their dad or the lack of relationship with their dad, but also like just like the trickle down effect that that had on their relationships with each other, but also their relationships with men as well. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to explore that. And like, so in the book, you know, like Sarah is the older daughter and she was with her dad, like her dad was with them until she was six years old. So she actually had a relationship with her dad, but Meg, the younger daughter was two years old when he left and she doesn't really have much of a, an idea of who he was or anything. So yeah, Meg throughout the story doesn't really ever have like a real loving romantic relationship with a man so and is sort of like dealing with all these issues um sort of like not knowing who who to be in a relationship and feeling like she needs approval from men she also doesn't trust men she's kind of like in that weird place and then Sarah she's had a bit of like a loving like she was really close with her dad when he was around and she can like hang on to that and remember that and she does have like a somewhat like fairly healthy good relationship with a man when she leaves home so um yeah and there's actually like like further on in the story that or the chapter that I read for this show you know Meg sort of like tries to find her father and ends up like sort of like dating him in a way like finds him online on like plenty of fish and so she's always she's always like trying to like find out who this man is and find out like who she is to him and who she is to other men too yeah yeah. I think um I was thinking of the relationship with Sarah and Nick. There's one line in like a chapter when they first meet where he puts his finger in her mouth and you describe it tasting like bus pole. <laughs> and I just thought that was like one of the most perfect descriptions of anything. I immediately was like, why do I know what that tastes like? I've never licked a bus pole, but immediately I knew <laughs> what that would taste like. Sort of like defiled metal taste yeah yeah no that was such a such a great description there were so many great descriptions but that one just like always that stands out for some reason probably because it's you know you never want to taste a bus bowl we all have that nightmare <laughs> <laughs> <Bus bowl finger. laughs> 
Yeah. Even your own hand being on a bus pole and then accidentally ending up yeah. near your face is enough. Yeah. Especially now, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about the relationship of the the three women with men and with uh, their dad and Gwen's uh, past boyfriend. Um, but I'm wondering if we, if you could talk to, there's something interesting about the fact that having done this podcast now for three seasons, it seems like there's something about like mother daughter relationships, but also sister relationships. Just that just seems like this like fertile ground for stories. And I'm, I was wondering why you think that is and what drew you to those kind of mother daughter sister relationships. Yeah. Definitely. I'm interested in the mother daughter. Yeah, sister. I didn't think about Yeah, for sure. Sisters as well. Um, Like what I'm writing right now is actually like all about mothers too. (laughs) So clearly I'm interested in this. Um, I think like the mother daughter relationship is like um, what I would call like our original trauma kind of like this is where this is what shapes all the relationships we have throughout our lives right so that's like it's so important to everyone and you find like I'm sure everyone can relate to that so I wanted to look at that but then also like how like with their dad leaving the idea of like mothers also bear the blame of like everything that is wrong with us everything that's wrong with any child that does anything it's like let's blame the mother um and we blame our mother and I think it's because she's the one who's there she's the one who's doing the mundane tasks and like nagging us to to like you know do our laundry or whatever like and and the dad whether he's gone or still part of the family it seems he's kind of the idolized ghost figure like he's not there but when he graces us with his presence it's like all hail dad you know like so I just like wanted to look at that too and then also I hope there was like some redemption in the end like I find that when women become mothers then we extend some empathy towards our own mothers when we realize like how hard it is and you know oh like this this must be what she was feeling this is what she went through so I I kind of try I tried to do that like sort of in the end when the girls when all three women came back together and they were realizing like oh okay like mom deserves a bit more credit than we gave her and then yeah with the sisters I yeah it's interesting it's like there's this they're close and there's a sort of like this worshiping of the older sister by the younger sister and wanting to be her but also knowing that she's so different from her and they don't spend too much time together right because the older sister leaves um but there's that idea of like one sister ends up bearing the burden of the family taking care of things and the other sister sort of takes off and does her own thing and that was kind of a a reflection of like their personalities 
but then there's also this understanding like they come back together after 19 years and they know exactly who the other is and like how to get you know how to bug them and <laughs> how to get under their skin and also how to just so easily repair any damage too like just with one little touch or one little look how did you navigate the braiding of the stories i don't know if you would call it a i don't know if you would call it a braided narrative but just the fact that you told it from those three it's one story told from three points of view how did you decide um you know where the stories would come together and where they would differ and and you know who got more space and who got less space and i mean it works so so nicely but did you play with that a lot as you were you were figuring it out um i don't think a, a lot of it was not that conscious um <laughs> um but i think probably like sarah the oldest sister is the one who doesn't get as much sort of airtime or page time or whatever um and it's probably just because she's the one who left so like uh the mother Gwen and the youngest sister Meg stay in Victoria the whole time and Sarah takes off to Edmonton so the stories with Gwen or Meg they're kind of they're both usually I think they both are in those stories like regardless of whose point of view it's being told from but with Sarah no one else in the family is there so I guess that's why I decided to give her a bit less airtime because it was kind of just her and this book is about the family. Um, but yeah, I don't, honestly, it was just like what, what needs to happen. And, you know, there were, there were certain stories I wanted to tell, like, you know, Meg ends up getting divorced. Like she gets married, has a, child and then gets divorced so like I needed to tell that story how that happened and then you know Gwen has like a substance abuse problem so I wanted to have a story like focusing on that so it was more just like what events need to happen and who to focus on yeah and I think maybe that kind of leads to or maybe answers my next question too but even in the piece that you read a lot of time is is covered in the book but it it's not one of those things where you even really notice how much time has passed. It's because we go from like Gwen and the girls being born basically to the end, which I won't, uh, I won't spoil, but was part of navigating that timeline, finding those plot points and then, you know, figuring out, you know, I, I guess I guess my question is how you navigated the time that you covered and those leaps in time too. Hmm. Yeah, I think um yeah, because there were some leaps in time, which um it was mostly just like the book just kind of came about like really organically and I didn't even like at the onset I didn't know how much of a lifetime it would span actually um but I did I kind of I think I just wanted to hone in on important times in the characters lives and so I feel like even if a lot of time has passed we still it's that idea like what I was saying about the sisters like we know these characters so well 
that like it's like a friend from high school or something like you cannot talk to them for 10 years and then you can see them and it's just like no time has passed like that's that's what I hope comes out in the book like it's just like oh we know this person so well and here she is 10 years later she's still you know she's doing this now but like it's still her like we know her that that's kind of, that's kind of how I like to tell stories is just like little dives into crucial moments yeah and I think that like you there were parts where at first I was like oh who's talking because some of the chapters don't start with yeah. knowing like is this Sarah or Meg but it comes like you said because we do start to develop a relationship with the characters you kind of start to know who it is just like a few sentences in you start to identify their characteristics and that sort of thing yeah I hope that's the hope <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to ask about uh about point of view too because in the part that you read it was in second person which I love but it also parts are written in um third person as well and I guess again I'm I'm going to ask if it was a deliberate thing or whether it was something you played with or that just happened one day and it it really worked That actually was deliberate <laughs> <laughs> not a lot of what I did was but um yeah so like Gwen the mother all of her stories are in a close third and I did do that on purpose because she's the one who kind of like keeps a bit of distance between herself and everyone around her she's the one who's sort of like more cold and closed up and you know doesn't let people in Meg is probably the one who's like the most emotional and the most like vulnerable and her she has a couple second person stories that are sort of like those are like the really emotional difficult events in her life where she feels like she has to tell the story to herself like it's so so traumatic that I use a second person for those. Um, but otherwise, I'm pretty sure <laughs> all of her stories are in first person. Um, and Sarah's also in first person. Yeah, I'm not even, I think it's just because that voice just seemed to work with her. She's sort of like such a strange, quirky person that it was like she just needs her to tell her story like in her own way. Um, but yeah, choosing to use third for Gwen was a definite conscious choice show their different personalities okay my last question for you it's going to take us back to where we began and where the book begins but I noticed the back of the book has a blurb from mm -hmm. Tom Holliston who some people will know from the Victoria Punk band no means no and I was curious how that happened and uh I thought that was a great blurb for a book. I had, I don't know if I've seen many novels with a no means no uh, band member blurb on the back. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That was actually like a super last minute thing. Um, it's because Silas White, like the publisher of Nightwood, he knows Tom Holliston. So like, I guess he must live on the Sunshine Coast or something now. And that was just Silas's idea. He was like, oh, I should try and get him to write a little blurb and like as if Dorothy's Rainbow which is the band the punk band that like the dad in the story was in the fictional punk band <laughs> um, 
um, as if it were like a real punk band that was like actually in the scene with No Means No and to like write a little thing about that. So he was like, can I do this? And I said, yeah, that's an amazing idea. And then he came back to me and said, oh, sorry, like Tom doesn't have the time to do that. And so, okay, fine. But then I got my author's copy and the blurb was at the back and I was like, oh my gosh, it worked out. So it was just like last minute, he sent something to Silas and Silas told me he like literally stopped the presses <laughs> to like get this blurb on the back cover. So yeah, I think it's a cool touch <laughs> for sure. Sort of like bring that band like into the real world. Thanks so much to Susan for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you would like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. On our website, you'll find all the information about the shortlisted authors, as well as details about events like our storied series. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Eve Lazarus whose book, Vancouver Exposed, Searching for the City's Hidden History, is a finalist for the 2021 Bill Duthie Booksellers' Choice Award. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.